Today on the Jacob Beer Show, I get to interview Governor Jim Gilmore, who was a former governor of Virginia. He was also a former ambassador, also an attorney general, and also uh, the former Republican Party chairman at one point, if I'm correct. That's right, for chairman of the RNC. That's correct, for about a year. How's your day going? So far, so good. It's uh, nice to have a little time to work on some big projects, and that's what I'm doing right now. Sounds good. Well, the first question I have is, what got you interested in the politics and government? Uh, well, I'll tell you the story, but I'll try to make it as quick as I can. Uh, in my junior year of high school, uh, I, was, uh, I, I joined an international band to play music and to toured Europe. And I suddenly realized uh, in that all-American band that I was never going to be a professional musician. Uh, I was good, but not gifted. So I, I was looking around for something else and I got recruited to do forensics uh, on the forensics team in my high school. And then I was also recruited to handle a precinct for a candidate. And I did that and I basically found my life's work because uh, I decided politics was the place where I could make the biggest difference. And I began to participate in Republican politics. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm... You're good. Hey, John, I'm on a podcast. I'm going to have to call you back. Okay, pal? Right. Thank you, Ray. Bye. Well, I don't know what that does to your recording, but... That's totally uh, fine. I can take it I out. Actually cut the, I thought I cut the ringer off. Um, so uh, I joined, uh, I basically went to University of Virginia, joined the Young Republicans, and I've never, really never looked back. And that's how I became engaged in Republican politics. I stayed with the Young Republicans all four years and continued in youth politics for years. And then ultimately, of course, uh, when I graduated from the law school, I entered into real politics and began to uh, work with the party, a senior party, and also run for office. Sounds good. And what was it like running for office your first time? Well, no, the first time I ran, I ran as a very young man uh, who had just gotten out of law school uh, for a member of the, uh, for, to run for the legislature. And I really was not really equipped to win that. But then a few years later, um, I had an opportunity to run for a Commonwealth attorney, which is the chief prosecutor for my local county. And I got elected to that. That's a story all into itself. And then after serving there for four years, I was uh, reelected and then uh, began to run for statewide office. And after that was elected attorney general of Virginia, then elected governor of Virginia. So that's a thumbnail sketch. Wow. And it most like being attorney general of a state. Oh, attorney, attorney general is a great job. If you're a lawyer and you're really committed to the law and the rule of law, it's a great job. It's a great administrative job. You're basically handling a big law firm on behalf of the state of Virginia or any state where you're the attorney general. Um, I had about 120 lawyers that worked for me and I reorganized them. And it's a, a duty to be working with their morale and their professionalism. And then also it had a public policy uh, component also, because you're elected, you're not just appointed, you're elected in Virginia to be the attorney general, which means that you have a duty to really look at public policy as well as just the technique of the law. Uh, so how you intervene in cases, what you do, how you argue them on behalf of the public is really the decision of the elected official. But it was a great job uh, and uh, you could have an opportunity to observe the governor, which of course I did. And then uh, becoming governor, what was that experience like? Well, that was a great experience. Uh, after being an attorney general, the party chose me uh, to be the candidate for governor. Uh, that was a great experience to, to run for governor of Virginia. Make no mistake about it. Attorney generals are great jobs, but there is no higher job than uh, the governor of a state. 
unless of course you become the president. <laughs> but it's a uh, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to set the stage, to, to make the legislative decisions, to run the government, to do the politics. You're head of your party in in effect, and you're also head of the government. So it's a, it's a wonderful job, and it gives you a great exposure, of course, to national issues as well. For sure, absolutely. And after that, you ended up after you were governor of Virginia, you ended up becoming the RNC chair for about a year. What was that experience like? Oh, that was a bit of a challenge uh, because uh, I was doing three things at the same time. Uh, that was an appointment made by George W. Bush because I had helped him carry Virginia and helped him get the nomination uh, against John McCain. So he was grateful and he made me chairman of the RNC. Uh, but um, I, I think that uh, I was a little too independent uh, as, a, as a chairman. I had my own ideas about what to do. And while I was of course always uh, obedient to the president who appointed me, uh, I think that uh, you know perhaps I was a little too independent. Uh, but at the same time, I was also uh, chairman of the National Commission on Terrorism for the United States that had been appointed by the Congress uh, three years before. Uh, and I was a chairman of that commission three years before the 9-11 attack and then two more years afterwards. So there's a five-year body of work on anti-terrorism issues. And then, of course, I was governor. So I was doing all those things at the same time. Uh, but being chairman of the National Party was great. I really loved the people and the National Committee. Uh, every state that I went into and talked to with the Republicans, I loved those people. I thought they were dedicated people. Everybody's got their own different ideas and the Republican party is much more diverse than the Democratic party in my view, uh, in terms of ideas and ideologies. Uh, there's no set pattern in the Republican party the way there is in the Democratic party. So in consequence, it was a great challenge, but a lot of fun. And I think we were, I was doing something to help the party and help the country. Absolutely. And after that, you took some years off, and I, uh, I assume you went into some private sector stuff, and you came out in 2008 and decided to run for president. What was that experience like? Well, I did. I was in pr the private business for a while and was uh, doing a lot of work on boards and, and commissions and also in a private law firm. Uh, but uh, you know, when the time came to run for president, uh, I thought that was the best and only real opportunity to run. Uh, it was a big field of 16 or 17 candidates. Uh, there was no settled uh, Republican candidate at that time. Uh, and I felt like that was the, the, the best opportunity for me to, to run, maybe the only opportunity. So I took it. And I don't regret it for a minute. Uh, I, the theory of my race, uh, the, the, the press and, and so have, have sort of tried to belittle that race. And I don't blame them because I didn't get too far. But then neither, neither, neither did another 12 or 15 people. Absolutely. Uh, but in my case, uh, my, my theory was to go into the race and then gain some, uh, some notoriety and get out there and speak on the issues and offer my credentials and grow in the campaign. There was never any opportunity to grow in that campaign. My lesson to you would be this, uh, American politics has changed dramatically. And today, uh, really the people who are in charge of the nomination process are really the media. Uh, they decide who's going to get on camera. They decide who's going to be promoted. They decide who's going to get onto the news shows. They decide who's going to get the credibility. And they decide who's going to be on the debate stage. Absolutely. Unless you're a billionaire, of course, like Bloomberg, and you can buy your way onto the debate stage or something, or like Raspberry or something like that. You know, even if you're some senator from a state and you have good ideas, they want to control everything. And they do. 
Uh, so naturally, if you're a billionaire, uh, you just go and buy a lot of TV and then you get name ID and the public then begins to uh, answer for you on the polling. And then at that point, you uh, you get the credibility. The media set the rules. They set the stage. They decided who was going to be on the stage and who wasn't. And they arbitrarily picked a poll uh, uh, criteria. So the people who could afford to buy early advertising got the name ID, rose in the polls, and got a chance to be on the stage, in which case then you got more exposure and more polling. So there's a spiraling up. But if you don't have that initial notoriety or that initial initial name ID, it's very, very hard under the present system to emerge. And my political theory was to emerge and that opportunity never presented itself. The second thing that happened in that particular year was that uh, Donald Trump did emerge. And uh, I, I will be tell you my opinion. My opinion was that the left wing in this country and the media decided that Donald Trump could not possibly win and that he was a, a buffoon and that he was not to be taken seriously the left wing and the media were all committed to Hillary Clinton. So as a result, they promoted Donald Trump and he became a dominant figure. Uh, he responded to a certain frustration that was in existence in, the, in America and in the party, but he had a chance to, to voice that because of the preferences that were given to him uh, because they thought he was a sure loser. Well, as it turns out, he was not sure a loser. He was a sure winner. And, and he, he won. Came, and he won. Uh, but he left the rest of us in the dust. Uh, the other <laughs> now, what was that like? Uh, you were in a few of the debates. Um, of course, I remember 2016 is the first time I really watched presidential debates. Uh, it's the first time I ever knew who Marco Rubio was. I even watched on the card debates, you, Bobby Jindal, uh, Rick Perry, everybody. What was that like in 2016? Because, you know, 2016 was almost like it was more aggressive than the 20, the 2008 Republican primary. You know, there were more people who were like, if we don't win here, we're done as a country or something, because essentially if Hillary would have won, it would have been another term of Obama or something like that, or another term of Bill Clinton or something like that. But it would have been good. So there was a lot more competitiveness going into it. What was that like in 2016 running? Well, it was a great experience. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I had a chance to get around Iowa and I had a chance to get around New Hampshire and began to campaign in South Carolina. But once again, if, if you weren't emerging as a candidate, you couldn't raise the money to really be competitive in those primary states. Uh, I will tell you my experience is that I decided to bypass Iowa because it would have required 12 to 25 field people uh, to be paying. And I didn't have that money uh, at that time. So I said, okay, I'm just going to pay attention to New Hampshire and campaign a lot there. Because there's lots of tallies there. Yeah, but my report to you is that that doesn't work. If you, if you don't campaign in Iowa and you don't at least get noticed in Iowa, the media will not pay attention to you in New Hampshire. So that's my lesson. You can't skip Iowa. You have to participate in Iowa, which means you have to have the money to hire at least 25 field people and organize the state months, if not years in advance. Interesting. Wow. And really, and of course, so, you know, I've done some research about it. When you run for president, you know, it's not something where you just show up before the election day. You know, you first have to win uh, your party nomination, of course, which is very hard. You have to make the debate stage. You have to make fundraising. You have to do a bunch of interviews. It's a lot of traveling and everything like that. Uh, the other thing that I would say is, what were your thoughts on then the 2020 field, if you don't mind me asking, the field of Democrats? Do you think that Joe Biden was going to be their winner or initially? Because yeah. Jim Clyburn who... is what came in big and got him South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I never knew what the internal Democratic Party politics were and, and how it was going to work. 
And uh, I think that uh, it's useful now to uh, depart from that and uh, going forward and think about what the nature of the uh, Democratic Party is today and what the nature of the administration is today and who's really calling the shots today and what kind of philosophy is coming forward today because uh, Joe Biden never offered this far left uh, philosophy when he was a candidate for president. He actually tried to present himself as sort of the moderate everyman and uh, counterposed himself to people like Bernie Sanders and so on like that. But I believe we would agree that the left, the far left is in charge of the Democratic Party today. And that's Absolutely. what's driving the public policy of the United States today. Absolutely. And uh, another thing is after that, you ended up when after Trump won in 2019, you got you got to be an ambassador. Uh, what was that like? You had a very important role. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you lived in Austria. Uh, yes, uh, the, the experience, first of all, I was actually uh, under consideration to be ambassador to Germany. And at the last minute, that did not come through. Uh, but then the people in the State Department and outside said, this is nuts. Gilmore really ought to be in the diplomatic corps. So they began to lobby for me to, to be an ambassador. And I was offered the opportunity to be United States ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which meets in Vienna, Austria. You ought to think about that is while it's European centric, it's really the entire Northern Hemisphere. It's everything in Europe, everything, including the Balkans, the Baltics, Russia, Ukraine, all the Western countries, Canada, the United States, and even goes out into Central Asia. So basically the entire Northern Hemisphere is a member of the OSCE. Uh, I went there and represented the United States. Uh, I did not represent a party. I did not represent a, uh, a philosophy. I represented, well, I did represent a philosophy. I represented the president's philosophy. Uh, but uh, uh, I did uh, speak on behalf of the United States of America. And that's an entirely different thing. Uh, this was uh, uh, not a partisan job. It was a, uh, an, an American job. And there, um, I had a philosophy that, uh, that uh, we needed to keep an eye on the Russians. Uh, the under Vladimir Putin, uh, the Russians are, are really conducting themselves very badly. Uh, they, I believe, don't believe they can ever be great again unless they reassemble the old Soviet empire, the Russian empire. Uh, I don't really care, but I think that all the people that they want to conquer do care. And I think they don't want to be part of the Russian empire. And to be frank with you, the United States is still the big player in the world and certainly the big player even in Europe. Uh, we're the ones that if we stand firm and we're decisive and we're strong and principled and stand for the right things, our allies will rally to us. And I found our allies were just fine with American leadership and I always treated our allies with a great deal of respect. For that matter, I treated the Russians with respect because they were entitled to respect. But that doesn't mean that you have to agree with what they're trying to do. And so my goal as the United States ambassador was to represent the power and the interests of the United States, and then to find ways to enhance that through uh, geopolitics. Absolutely. And what was it like working with President Trump? Uh, how often, when you're in a position to talk to him much, uh, what was that like, you know, communicating with the West Wing and, and, and I would assume the State Department as well uh, at some point? Well, you know, there are 193 countries in the world, and we have ambassadors in most of them. Uh, there are probably about, oh, I don't know, 60 political appointees, and the rest were all career professionals in various countries, but the key countries are all political appointees. And uh, Jacob, I think they should be. 
there's a lot of talk, particularly around the Democratic Party, that political appointees in the diplomatic corps are bad and that we ought to be just relying upon foreign service officers. I completely disagree with that. Uh, I think that uh, political appointees understand the politics of the United States, they understand the policy of the United States, and they're not careerists, which means that they're at liberty to actually promote uh, good policy. Interesting. Uh, that's not to say that I didn't, didn't like the career officers I was working with. I had about 35 embassy people over there working with me in this international organization. And uh, they were all excellent people. I have no complaints about any of the State Department people, but they're not the same as a politically appointed ambassador. The reality is the politically appointed ambassador carries much more weight and credibility and legitimacy than a career uh, foreign service officer. And that's which, why you have to have pol political people appointed to the major countries and the major organizations like UN, like OSCE, like NATO, like EU, and like the other principal countries of the world. Absolutely. And what would you say is right now with the current state of America, what would you say at the moment is the most important thing that we really need to focus on that President Biden and his team, cabinet specifically, because they really run America, and our leaders who are elected and have power, what is something that you think is the biggest thing right now that's affecting all of us, not just a specific state? Well, look, the, the, the two principal debates right now, uh, one is recognized and the other is not. Uh, the one that's recognized is this uh, amazing spending program that uh, President Biden is putting forward. He's really doing it uh, at the behest of Bernie Sanders, really, and the far left and the Democratic Party. With a bare, even split in this country, they want to take a bare majority and try to rework and remake the entire United States of America. And they're doing that through these amazing spending programs. Now, don't think we've got the money. We don't have the money. We don't have the money. Do no, we don't have the money. They're going to do it with debt <laughs> and they're going to do it with higher taxes. That's what they're going to do. But it's a transformational series of spending programs that they're trying to put into place. Now, they rode COVID for the first one. They're riding infrastructure for the second one. The third one, they really have no theory uh, other than the socialist theory. And that's why they're running into so many problems with that. Personally, I think we've spent too much money already and we, we should not spend more money until we get our house in order. The second uh, challenge that is not recognized is the international challenge. And that's the one that I understand best because of my experience for two years in Vienna. The, the world is very unstable. Europe is very unstable. The Pacific is very unstable. As we talk right now, the Chinese are doing air incursions into the Taiwan airspace right now. The Russians uh, just a few months ago put over 100,000 troops on the border with Ukraine and threatened that country uh, because of their policy, which is to try to once again reassemble the old Russian empire. And I can promise you, I've been there. The Ukrainians Absolutely. do not want to be a part of that. And, so and that's the thing, you know, and I've heard this prediction. Um, right after the Olympics, I wouldn't be shocked if China moves in on Taiwan. I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, they're waiting for a window, and they have the window right now with a, a leader who's not awake at the helm, sadly. And the problem is that that takes you right back to Afghanistan. The chaotic uh, policy that we have done towards Afghanistan, the sellout of our friends, the abandonment and, and runaway. That it was horrible. And I have written on this subject uh, on Fox.com, FoxNews.com. That sends a message. That sends a message of instability, of weakness, of fear, 
of disorganized, of, of disloyalty. Uh, that's the message that's been sent. Well, there are two people that are particularly closely listening to that. One is in Moscow and the other is in Beijing. And they're and watching. There's, there's going to be a big, I'm telling you, I mean, there's going to be something big that happens under the first term of Biden. So, I mean, you know, they look just like you said, sorry if I interrupted you, but just like I said, you know, now's the chance because we have poor leaders at the helm. We have advisors in the White House that are horrible right now. We have uh, a lady who can't get out to the people in the press office. We have people who are not awake and there's gonna be another big thing that happens. Well, we don't want that uh, because uh, this is extremely dangerous. Uh, if the Russians or the Chinese make a mistake, uh, then we could be in a war, a real war. And uh, we do not want that. Of course not. Uh, we'll, we're not, we're not, we're going to win any war against these people that we go against, but the, we, but it could get way out of hand. And uh, in a nuclear world, it could be extremely, extremely dangerous. So the goal here is to not have the Chinese or the Russians make a mistake. And they're perfectly capable of making a mistake, particularly with this president in the White House. The Russians or the Chinese may make an error they may assume that the United States will fall back and retreat the way we did in Afghanistan. If we do, we begin to uh, surrender the free world, uh, honestly, uh, in the, the years ahead. If we do react, well, then we're in a war and we don't want that. So the, our policy needs to be to, to prevent the Chinese or the Russians from making a mistake. And I think they're perfectly capable of making that mistake. Absolutely. And just another thing that I'll say real quick, and I don't hold you for too much longer or anything is, you know, as, as you mentioned just prior to this, you know, with everything going on, is that, you know, Democrats are trying to run everything through. And they're successful because they have the House and the Senate and the presidency. Even though it's a slow majority, they're going straight by with everything. When Republicans are in the majority, we are very weak, sadly. And that's something that I can tell you is happening in our state legislature in Indiana right now. We have a Republican governor, a Republican legislator and no big Republican policies are getting passed. And I'm sure you as a governor, uh, having a legislator, if your party was in control at the time, you probably felt like, why can't we get more things done? But what would your advice be to Republicans? Because the Republican voters are fed up that when we send these people in our party to DC, they do nothing. They're basically a moderate Democrat instead of a Republican. What well, advice would you have on that? Or what would you say? My, my advice is to this. I think that the people who are holding public office or running for public office in the Republican Party need to be grounded. I think they need to know what they're trying to do, not just want to be in office and strut around and, you know, all that kind of thing. They need to know what their principles are, what they're trying to achieve or not trying to achieve. Then at that point, they know how to behave when they get in the legislature or get into the United States Congress. And when the far left in this country pushes against them, they, they, they ought to be saying no, not maybe or partially or compromise or any of that kind of thing. They need to be saying no. Now, if there's a reasonable uh, policy on behalf of the people, there's no reason why Republicans shouldn't offer it, promote it and, uh, and support it and try to get the far left to support it. But the Republicans need to be on the initiative to do the right thing. So for example, uh, we ought to, uh, to have a policy that says that we really ought not to be spending all this money uh, until we get control of our budget. That ought to be the, the Republican policy. And we ought to be talking about it all the time. And right? no one's talking we, about it. And nobody's talking about Our it. minority so, leader on both sides are not talking about it. Yeah, and so you, you know, the voters are getting very frustrated. 
you, you surrender the bully pulpit to the far left if you don't tell people what you're trying to do. Otherwise, there's no justification for your behavior and the far left and condemns you. So that's, the, uh, that's my advice. Number one, figure out what you're trying to do. And secondly, we need to be responsive to the people who are looking to the Republican Party for their salvation. And the, the people of, of America and the people of our states and the people in the party are angry. They're angry because they feel like that their Republican leadership always compromises and gives the, the far left half a loaf. And then next year they come back for the other half. Instead, we need to be on the initiative to try to uh, build a society that's appropriate, that, that, uh, that creates initiative and opportunity, that supports the capitalist system, that sustains uh, uh, our power for peace internationally, stands for human rights democracy. These are the things that the Republican Party needs to stand for. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, one other thing is what advice would you have for the, this is the closing one? What advice do you have for uh, the next generation of voters, people who might be interested in running for office? Well, of course, if you're involved in the young Republicans or the college Republicans or the teenage Republicans, uh, you're already a, a, the type of person that would take this kind of advice. But my advice is this. You know, this is America. This isn't some monarchy someplace or some dictatorship. This is America. We still, to this day, have a democracy. We still have political parties. We still run for office. And uh, I, I think young people really don't have a choice here. Uh, they have to get engaged. They have to become involved. They have to decide what's right and what's wrong. They have to read. You know, I recognize that today the media, with their advertising, promotes a pretty silly young people. Uh, that uh, want to do other things, but they really don't have any choice. Uh, citizenship means that you just have to participate. You're forced to participate. Uh, and then you have the prop, you have to find those, those right uh, vehicles. And, you know, some young people will choose the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I hope they know why they're doing that. But some will choose the Republican Party. And I think you have to have a vehicle and decide what kind of approach and then take action. Young people got to go to college. They got to get equipped. They got to learn, they got to learn how to learn. And then they have to understand policy and decide for themselves uh, what kind of things they want to do in the future. But you can't drop out in America. It's not possible. Uh, every time young people quit and decide they want to do something else, uh, this country goes, and the world therefore goes down. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you very much for the chance to talk to your viewers. Thank you. All right.